National Review Institute is cruising to Alaska. Join NR writers and other thought leaders for a special vacation from June 16 to June 23 aboard Holland America's Nordum. If you're feeling especially adventurous, you can participate in an optional land tour before the cruise from June 12 to June 15. Enjoy fine dining, entertainment, and world-class accommodations as you rub elbows with NR personalities and other special guests during panel discussions, breakout sessions, exclusive 1955 Society events, and more. Make it a family trip! This year, we've added youth programming for your children and grandchildren. Destinations include Glacier Bay, Skagway, and Juneau. To register, visit nricruise.com. That's nricruise.com. Trump off the ballot and some highlights and lowlights from the year that was. We will discuss all that and more on this episode of The Editors. I'm Noah Rothman. Rich is out, but in his absence, we're joined by Charles C.W. Cook and the one and only MBD, Michael Brandon Doherty, and Madeline Maddie Kearns. You are, of course, listening to a National Review podcast. Our sponsors this episode are Waterstone, You're Not Alone, the Conservative Woman's Guide to College, and the New Deal's War on the Bill of Rights, the untold story of FDR's concentration camps, censorship, and mass surveillance. More on them later on. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. If you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So, Donald Trump booted from the ballot. Colorado Supreme Court in a 4-3 decision this week declared Donald Trump ineligible for ballot access because of his alleged participation in insurrection, cited a very novel legal theory which was first experimented with in journals just this year, um, maintaining that Section 3 of the Constitution's 14th Amendment bars those who engaged in rebellion from holding elected office. Charlie, you wrote about the deficiencies of the legal rationale here. and on, on a, a variety of state-level courts have taken a look at this and found no substance to it, but Colorado did. Where do you think they went wrong? Well, as you know, I have, in my endless quest to annoy everyone, been dissatisfied both with the decision of the Colorado Supreme Court and with some of the criticisms of it. I am dissatisfied with the decision of the Colorado Supreme Court because I think it makes a bunch of jumps in its evaluation of the relevant definitions and the original public meaning of those definitions in a way that it shouldn't do per se and that it especially shouldn't do when the subject is so weighty. And I've been annoyed with some of the criticisms of the Colorado Supreme Court because they have boiled down to the idea that it is intrinsically undemocratic for a court to interpret the Constitution in any way that deprives the public of the chance to vote for or against a candidate, which is nonsense. The Constitution contains all sorts of limitations on what the public can vote for. We set elections on a fixed timetable doesn't matter how many people would like there to be an election this year. We limit 
who can be president, how old they have to be before they can run, how many terms they can run for. We limit what those presidents can do. If Article 3 of the 14th Amendment, which was democratically ratified by a supermajority, as all amendments under Article 5 must be, if that provision said what the Colorado Supreme Court says that it says, if it applied clearly to Donald Trump, then Donald Trump would be barred from running for the presidency in much the same way as he would be if he'd been impeached in 2021. My problem is that I don't think that it does. I think there is a real question as to whether the president of the United States counts as an officer who can be disqualified. I say that in part because I think the framers of that provision anticipated what we're now seeing. There's a clear difference between disqualifying someone from being, say, the senator from Nebraska and disqualifying somebody from being president because Nebraska's courts affect only Nebraska in the former example, but the whole country in the latter example. I think that it is a stretch to assume that the definition of insurrection is self-executing, or that it can be determined by the court without any other process, whether that's a congressional finding or some sort of criminal trial. And I think that the uh, notion that the uh, behavior of Donald Trump on January 6th, egregious though it was, disqualifying in my estimation, though it should have been via the impeachment process or via the will of the public, the notion that that constituted insurrection is really weak. If you look back to much of the discussion of Article 3 of the 14th Amendment, Section 3, I should say, you will see that analysts at the time generally believed that there had to be some sort of material involvement, whether that was leading an army or acting as an officer or agent within a rebellious government that did things, not that said things. I think Trump has behaved in a manner that is antithetical to the Democratic Republic in which we live. I, I think trying to spin what he did to match the definition of insurrection or its cousin treason is really tough. And I think that's why he hasn't been brought to trial for that. I think that's why there is no external finding of fact of the sort that I think the court in Colorado would need to be able to point to. So I don't think there is any problem whatsoever with having a constitutional order that puts hard limits on what the people can vote for at any given point, especially given that that constitutional order was ratified by a majority and amended by a supermajority. I just don't think that the Colorado Supreme Court, in interpreting federal law, has exercised legitimate authority under that constitution. I think it has usurped that constitution. I think it's using that constitution. I think it has taken the putty of that constitution 
and turned it into something that it's not. And that really is regrettable given the stakes, which are, and this is where we do get to the point that many of the critics have made, are enormous in a country that relies for its legitimacy upon the democratic process. All right, so Michael, let's get to two of those stakes, two of those, some of those stakes. So it seems to me that Republicans, conservatives, Trump voters have one of two reactions to this, probably more, but generally two, and one is more pronounced than the other. Either uh, it's galvanizing, it uh, makes you, it increases your resolve to try to right this injustice and engage in the process, or it is profoundly depressing. Um, there's obviously, you know, both can be true, but one is usually more pronounced than the other. Where do you come down? Huh? Um, the thing is, I haven't seen evidence of either yet in, in polling, right? There's a, a few polls this week and we didn't see any of the dramatic movement we saw after the first big Trump indictment last year, uh, which is what I expected to see. I expected to see more consolidation, but I I think we may have run out of that uh, room for that now. Um, you know, it might it might be stiffening the spine of those already resolved to, to vote for Donald Trump. Um, but I, I think that might already be baked in. Um, I don't see much movement from this. Uh, I do see it just sort of uh, shaping people's attitudes even more though. Like, you know, it, it discomforts people. I mean, I actually was thinking of your writing on this, Noah, where, you know, you kind of said like, this was like the moment when you said, okay, yeah, if this is where it's going, then I agree that Trump is being politically persecuted. And it's funny because it's like, that's a moment that other people have had at various junctures along this journey, whether, you know, at the earlier times during Russiagate or, Maybe during the Ukraine impeachment was like, you know, longtime listeners might remember Luke Thompson kind of, that was his line. Um, and, um, you know, or the 2024, the 2020 election, the fortifying of it, according to Molly Ball, whatever you want to make of that. Um, but here we are. I, th I just think it, this is all leading in one direction, but I'm not sure it's, I'm not sure there's like a big dramatic move in popular sentiment. I think it's already happened. Okay, but you didn't answer the question. <laughs> Where do you come down on this? Are you galvanized or are you depressed? I'm depressed. I mean, uh, I'm depressed because I just, I, I think somehow our, I don't know, Americans have a political death wish. Um, and want a constitutional crisis to happen um, that Democrats will not set, be satisfied with defeating Donald Trump by normal means um, because they, they simply do not accept that he won by normal means in 2016. Uh, and so I think in their mind, there's like this narrative pull that he can't be defeated just by um, beating him at the ballot box. Um, so I, I find it, I find it profoundly depressing that like every week and maybe every month from now until the election, we're going to get some novel theory about disqualifying Trump. And this debate's not going to end even, you know, if the Supreme court just 
rules on Colorado now, because this debate can pick up again after Jack Smith convicts in Washington, D.C., right? You could have secretaries of state respond to that ruling by saying, oh, well, now I'm going to try this theory uh, of kicking Trump off the ballot. And if the Supreme Court hasn't made clear what in a ruling what will happen in, you know, if Jack Smith convicts, you know, chaos will, will come again. That is exactly the self-reinforcement that I needed, because that's where I'm at. Madeline, um, so MBD is kind of a little optimistic there, to the extent that perhaps the political effect of Donald Trump's uh, travails in courts has you know, achieved all it can achieve and we're at the point of diminishing returns. But what do you think is the best way that this can resolve itself? And if that's too hard, what's the worst? Yeah. So I, I'm not sure we are at the end of, of this. I, I think that given that Trump has been campaigning for a year and he's way ahead in the polls, it would be just incredibly polarizing um, if, you know, to, to pursue this course of action and, I also think, you know, we've, we've talked a bit about the the court having to sort of stretch its language um, that Trump engaged in an insurrection on January 6th. And this is this is something I'm, I'm worried about in terms of precedent. So if 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 Trump has not been um, convicted of insurrection uh, by a judge or a jury, but this is this theory is enough to go on to to strike his name off the ballot. Why not do the same with Biden? And the questions about his conduct and the question about corruption or even just policy uh, disagreements. It's, it, I think it's a very uh, toxic precedent to say. I think it does help Trump. I think it, it feeds directly into this narrative that he is victim a victim of, of partisan actors um, who are who are trying to usurp democracy. You know, we we, we kind of talked about uh, the Robert Kagan idea that that Trump is is a dictator and 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 because he's a dictator you have to like go to really drastic measures and a lot of these measures end up being illiberal and um and I, and I think I think that people people see this and they think wait a second why aren't we the voters trusted with this question it should be up to us to decide um whether this guy should be on on the ballot uh, sorry well yeah well that and also you know we should have a say and who becomes president. So I, I see this as, as helping Trump. Obviously, we haven't necessarily seen the evidence of that yet, but that that's certainly my fear with this. Yeah, I'm, I don't see any good outcomes here one way or the other. <clears throat> if this ruling stands, it would be a crisis of profound proportions. Blue states would rush to keep Donald Trump off the ballot. Red states would decline, in fact, rally around him, and we'd have an 1860-style election, the consequences of which are unfathomable. If the Supreme Court strikes it down, as I think most of us believe it will, it'll only further erode trust in institutions. Republicans will have all the evidence they need to say the courts have been corrupted. People like me, as Michael noted, who have been saying all along that Donald Trump's legal uh, woes are his own making, will have to concede that he is a per victim of political persecution on some level or another. Meanwhile, the left will just accuse the Supreme Court of being a MAGA court. They'll disregard the rationale, whatever legal rationale they use to invalidate the verdict, and it'll be excuse an excuse to break down our institutions further and remake them in their own images. There's no undoing Colorado's verdict. It will haunt us from years to come. I, I don't know what kind of judgment 
they used to render this verdict seems to be a very uncharitable assumption about the American Civic Compact at a time when we should be thinking about our charitable giving. But you don't have to worry about that if you're using Waterstone. When Patricia tried to donate to a conservative organization through her donor-advised funds, her request was denied. Why? Because they said she was trying to give to a hate group. That's why she switched to Waterstone, a donor-advised fund dedicated to upholding Judeo-Christian values. Waterstone is unique in the world of donor-advised funds. It accepts gifts of cash, as well as real estate, business interests, oil, and more. They can help you receive immediate tax deductions and make a difference for the charity of your choosing. With its charitable pooled trust, you can even generate a guaranteed income stream from your charitable giving. Waterstone strictly adheres to a Christian statement of faith, including pro-life declarations, and it does not give to charities that contradict those values. Waterstone is trusted by so many men and women of conviction, they gave $10 million per month in charitable grants. They can work with you or your financial advisor to make a giving strategy that fits your needs. Contact Waterstone's Giving Strategies team today for more information by visiting waterstone.org. That's waterstone.org. So we're going to zoom out a little bit and take a look at the year that has passed. And we're going to do some, some rankings. So who's the biggest? Who's the best? Who's the worst? Who's, uh, uh, you know, the most vexing? But we're going to start with, you know, the, the category that we probably should end with, which is who won the year? What is the biggest winner of the year? Person, institution, idea. Michael, let's start with you. <laughs> Winner of the year, it's Trump. Um, Trump won the year. Uh, he began his presidential campaign last year in what I thought was the most, you know, desultory fashion possible. Just this weird thing at Mar-a-Lago where, um, you know, Sean Hannity was like trying to massage the speech to suit which Sean Hannity thought the audience would want to hear and try to discourage Trump from, I don't know, talking about the uh, election fraud or whatever, how innocent those days were. Um, you know, it looked like, oh, this is, this looks like a flop. And New York Post started roasting Trump saying like, uh, Florida man declares for presidency. Yeah, well, we're not laughing anymore. Um he is way up in the polls. He is, he has turned, um, you know, what should be like a life destroying, um, event in his life, 91 charges into political fireworks for himself. And, um, you know, it's unfortunately still his world and we're living in it. Madeline, your biggest winner of 2023. Um, biggest winner is definitely without shadow of a doubt, Taylor Swift. Um, oh. and I'm not, I'm not a Taylor Swift fan by, by any stretch, but just if you look objectively at her, uh, her tour and the, uh, record breaking attendance and money generated and the way in which she revitalized local economies. I mean, she's, it's no exaggeration to say she's, she's literally made America richer, um, GDP went up by, I think, like $4.3 billion during her first 53 concerts. Um, she's Time Magazine Person of the Year, and she's also found love. Is it true love? 
I don't know, time will tell. But it's been a great year for Taylor Swift and we, we're all hanging on her coattails in terms of the economy. That's a good answer. Charlie, your winner. I think it's Trump too. I think Michael's right. I would distinguish it though from next year. Trump is where he needs to be. He has managed to get himself into a position in which he is almost certain to win the Republican nomination. But next year, all of the fruits of the trees that have put him in this position, indictments, overreach from the other side, his being less visible than Biden, many in the press wanting him to be the nominee and acting as such will flower. And I suspect it won't be his year next year. These are all good answers. My answer is going to be the forces arrayed against the DEI initiatives. Uh, I wrote about this for the website yesterday. Check it out. Uh, this was the year we saw a counterattack. It began with state-level officials uh, trying to circumscribe what uh, can be, uh, how students can be indoctrinated in DEI programs in state schools. The Supreme Court followed up with a profound salvo um, against uh, affirmative action, and um, those the there was a real counterattack that was breaking down these institutions even before the Ten Seven Massacre. But the Ten Seven Massacre has. Um, given a lot of permission to people who were skeptical of this program to come out in opposition to it. And for the first time in a long time, DEI is on the back foot. Now we're going to move on to losers of 2023. Madeline, who's your loser? Um, I think it's Kevin McCarthy. You know, he began the year as the third most powerful man in, in Washington and is ending it having submitted his formal resignation from Congress. And obviously we've talked about how he was ousted. And and I think it's one thing to be ousted, but it's another thing to be ousted by the, the people um, he was ousted by, Matt Gates and and just that force of chaos. Um, and it's not just uh, Kevin McCarthy who who loses in that situation, it's, it's Republicans generally. Um, so yeah, that a bad year for him. That's a good one. Charlie, who's your loser? My loser of the year is Joe Biden. I suppose that is neat, given that my winner is Donald Trump. But he's had a bad year. His overreach was struck down at the courts. He has failed to rebrand the economy, Bidenomics, successfully. He really has aged in the space of 12 months, and people have noticed his approval rating has dropped and dropped and dropped. Having taken over the House of Representatives, the Republicans have prevented him from doing anything legislatively. This has been a horrible year for President Biden. Another good one. Michael, I feel like I'm a game show host. Who's your loser? My loser is Ron DeSantis. Um, pains me to say so because I was... Uh, the person who for the longest time on this podcast just kept saying to Rich, just wait, just wait. You know, the, the background numbers of favorability are going to matter. Um, his broad acceptability to the party is going to matter when it, when we get close to Iowa, you know, the, the downsides of Trump's uh, charges are going to matter. Nope. None of it, none of it's mattering uh, so far. 
And, um, you know, maybe that will change. Maybe that will change in January, you know, as Iowa voters really come to their decision. You know, maybe there's those numbers that were suggesting there was some softness in the Trump support and people really are agonizing over who to, who to choose. Maybe that'll come out, but not by the end, not by December 31st. So what you have is Ron DeSantis just sinking throughout the year. Um, and, you know, I, it's not attributable to any one thing. Um, you know, there were some, he, he got into a little tiny controversy over Ukraine answers. I don't think that had any real effect, though. It was just a steady, slow erosion from the guy who emerged with the cleanest shirt in the 2022 election and looked like the superstar to come. And now, um, you know, it doesn't look so hot. My biggest loser of the year 2023 is Ukraine. The counteroffensive failed in its goals, and that has not only is that a strategic deficit for all involved, including us, but it gave everybody who was already invested in the conclusion some evidence to support the long-retailed claim that Ukraine's sovereignty is a lost cause. I don't think that's a permanent condition, especially if the battlefield shifts against Ukraine. There will be real panic over the prestige and the material investments Western gov governments have already invested in this contest, and those will probably ramp up but it demonstrates why it's foolish to allow those circumstances to materialize by neglecting the conflict now. Nevertheless, apathy is uh, everywhere, and that is tragic for Ukraine, it's tragic for us, and tragic for those who oppose hostile powers that covet their neighbor's lands. This has been a really depressing year-end review, so let's try to pick it up with the next one when we talk about the best political player of the year. And I'm going to kick it off, because my best political player of the year pivoting off uh, Madeline's answer, is Matt Gates. Haley Bird-Wilt, who used to write for The Dispatch, and her colleagues Claire Heedles and John Seward have a good piece in this new outfit. It's called notus.org. I don't know much about it, but the really good piece about how Matt Gates is the happiest person in Washington and has every reason to be. He began the year by squeezing the establishmentarian forces on the right, got everything he wanted out of it, played that game brilliantly over the course of the next eight months and then booted McCarthy for no apparent reason other than he just wanted to. And he has managed to hold hold Washington in the palm of his hand in a way that suggests that he's not just the gadfly with in very impressive hair that he seems to be. Um, it was quite a performance. But uh, Charlie, who's your pol best political player of 2023? I think it's Nikki Haley in the sense that she has put herself in a position that I didn't think she would and ought to be recognized for it. I don't think she's going to be the nominee. But when she declared her candidacy, I was open-minded but skeptical. And now she's, it seems, surging in New Hampshire. She's doing better in Iowa. She has a real chance of being the challenger candidate, she's got to have done something right. It doesn't matter for what it's worth whether one likes her or dislikes her, wants her to be the nominee or not, thinks she's playing for vice president. It doesn't matter. She's clearly maneuvered well. And the question was best political player of the year. That's politics. 
maneuvering is politics. I'll give it to her. Michael, who's your best? Best political maneuverer. So I have strange answer. I have, a, I have an honorable mention um, is Christopher Rufo, who uh, I think has been uh, unbelievably effective uh, in attacking DEI, in exposing elite institutions, and in exposing Harvard's president most recently of plagiarism. Uh, I just... I, like I couldn't let this segment go without mentioning him, but I want to kind of give like a cumulative win to Leonard Leo, uh, who really like the work is done over decades, but you're now seeing year after year, the Supreme court just dealing conservatives wins every summer, like one after the other affirmative action, gun rights, uh, you know, Roe v. Wade in previous year. This is just like an astonishing achievement and reversal. And, um, you know, Leo just, he, he deserves, he deserves the recognition. He deserves the W. He's a goat. <laughs> Good answer. Madeline, best political maneuverer. Um, with uh, regret, I, I think that um, it's Gavin Newsom and, I I would note up front that he, you know, after safely establishing his second and final term, he is, uh, his approval rating has gone to an all-time low, but I don't think it really matters at this point because he's focusing his ambitions nationally. Um, he's positioning himself nationally, even internationally. In, in some cases, he's been on his, um, you know, Democrat tour, uh, trying to boost boost Democrats even in, in red states. He's uh, behind the scenes in the spin room of, of the GOP primary debate. He's debating Ron DeSantis. He just seems like he's everywhere. And, you know, should Biden suffer some sort of health event or who, who knows really, but he's he's on people's minds and, and that's by design. And he's an effective political operator. He, he's a good talker. He has Sean Hannity eating out of his hand. Um, I think at, at one point, you know, he things that should be embarrassing or uh, costly to him, he, he recovers from quickly, like falling over a child <laughs> and then making it look, uh, making it look sort of like part of part of the 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 whole plan was was to do that. So anyway, I think he's formidable and increasingly so. It's interesting. We're gonna. Now go to the worst political player of the year, and I'm going to kick it off again and pivot off um, what Michael said in the last section and name Ron DeSantis as my worst political player of the year. He inherited some really difficult circumstances, but he navigated them quite poorly. Parlayed a $200 million war chest and a 2022 victory outside uh, all reasonable expectations into one of the worst campaigns that we've seen in a very long time. And the problems were obvious from the outset of the rollout where he had that bizarre interaction with Elon Musk and uh, David Sachs. But that was indicative, as subsequent months suggested, of a theory of the political landscape that proved to be really wrong. Siloed himself in these alternative media venues, endorsed bizarre niche policy preferences like pardoning the January 6th convicts. It's very online campaign, and it ended up 
alienating the voters he needed. He worked backward from a theory of the race that he could peel off Trump fans and Trump skeptics would follow and probably should have been the other way around. And at least when it wasn't working, you should have pivoted. We've seen the pivot now, but it seems to have come too late. As we're speaking right now, never back down, the pack aligned with Ron DeSantis is canceling its ads in Iowa and New Hampshire, which is the kiss of death. Where did all the money go? Somebody should really investigate that. It's not indicative of future performance. He can still turn this thing around with a miracle, but it will take a miracle. Charlie, who's your worst political player? My worst political player is the worst political player. It's Kamala Harris, who (laughs) may be the worst political player I've ever seen. She is the opposite of the goat. The woat, I suppose. She's a vice president. She's the vice president to a man who seems nearly dead. And she's not in the conversation other than to note that picking her was a mistake because she is so bad at politics. Nobody says, well, look, Biden's in trouble. People don't like him. They associate him with inflation. They think he's too old. They don't expect him to survive a second term. But we have Kamala Harris. No one is going to orient the 2024 re-election campaign around the safe pair of hands on the end of Kamala Harris's able arms. No. She's the worst political player in our politics. It's not even close. Every time she tries to show otherwise, she makes it worse yet. She is this year's winner, possibly next year's winner, maybe the winner for as long as she draws <laughs> breath. Madeline, who's your worst? Um, well, my worst like, could arguably, by a different logic, be the best, but um, George Santos and uh, Bob Menendez, I think, probably joint place in this. Um, obviously, there are people who are attracted to politics because it's an opportunity to uh, make money and um, just hoard influence and power. And these people like end up in politics. We know they end up in politics, but normally they have to like at least attempt to hide their corruption and dishonesty and just Santos Santos's lies in particular were just so astonishingly egregious um and obviously you can't really survive long term uh, if you behave that way having having said that you know Menendez is still around but um anyway a, sh- a short and uh, a short career in politics with a with a big flame out so I'd probably say he, he gets the prize it's kind of positive a bad year for venality I suppose <laughs> Michael, who's your worst? Um, this is really tough, actually. Um, I had I had two candidates for worst political player of the year. Um, but I'll, I'll put it this way: my, I'll make my honorable mention the Tory Party in the United Kingdom, which I think has just managed to waste everyone's time since Brexit, and please nobody. Uh, and and go to absolutely frightening levels in the polls where you wonder how the party will survive after the next election. Um, But I'm going to give it to Republican primary voters. I think they're gearing up to nominate Donald Trump, who has already lost a previous election, who is only buoyed in the polls nationally now, because he's not the focus of the eye of Sauron in the media. He's not the focus of negative ads nationwide. 
We're not being constantly reminded of how exhausting he can be as uh, the main character. And um, yeah, I think it's, uh, I think just voters are making the mistake here. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no simpler than that. Yeah. Hard to disagree with that. Well, we shall see. But first, we're going to talk to you briefly about two book recommendations we have for you for last-minute shoppers. They are available. You should get them first. The Conservative Woman's Guide to College by Karen Lips, president of the Network of Enlightened Women. The Network of Enlightened Women, a campus-based organization for conservative women, sees the challenges that conservative women are up against on campus, from liberal professors to censorship from their peers. It can be a lonely place for these students. That's what inspired news president Karen Lips to write You're Not Alone, The Conservative Woman's Guide to College. Readers will get to know more than 30 college students and alums as they share their experiences and advice. With those stories, Lips identifies problems on campus and provides practical tips on how conservative young women can thrive in this environment. The College Guide mentors college women on the many situations they will face. You're Not Alone, The Conservative Woman's Guide to College is available now for purchase on Amazon or conservativewomansguide.org. Buy a copy today for yourself, your daughter, your granddaughter, or anyone who wants to know what's happening on campus today and is searching for a conservative community. And another one, for those of you who are history buffs or have some of them in your life, The New Deal's War on the Bill of Rights, The Untold Story of FDR's Concentration Camps, Censorship, and Mass Surveillance by David T. Bieto. Spying on citizens, censoring critics, imprisoning minorities. These are the acts of dictators, not American presidents. Or are they? The legacy of FDR enjoys regular acclaim from historians, politicians, and educators. But is there a dark side to this golden legacy? The Independent Institute's latest book, The New Deal's War on the Bill of Rights, The Untold Story of FDR's Concentration Camp, Censorship, and Mass Surveillance by David T. Bieto, unveils a much different portrait of FDR. Order your copy on Amazon now. Pivoting back to our end of your list, we're going to talk about what I think and what you think is the most consequential news story of the year. Michael, what's your biggest story of 2023? So it's it's kind of not one story, it's sort of a theme of stories, but uh, the biggest thing happening in 2023, and the most consequential by far, is China's decline. Uh, China is in serious economic trouble. I think this is the year when it became obvious China will never surpass the U.S. economy in size. Uh, China's economy is shrinking already. Its population is shrinking faster than predicted. Um, we are getting a lot of signs of stress and desperation about fixing the value of the renminbi against the dollar. We're getting a lot of fudging of stats, misreporting of stats, uh, non-reporting of economic stats from China. We had Chairman Z basically come to the United States and beg tech companies to start reinvesting in China again. Evidence of capital outflow going out of control in China. Uh, I think this is the by far the most consequential story. Um, I think it should change our expectations going forward of what China's really capable of. I still think they are a dangerous rival. I think decline could be even a trigger for them to do something um, crazy as they see their window shutting. 
Um, but this is by far the biggest thing going. And in fact, I think it represents a potential danger to the United States, given how intertwined our economies are. That's a really good answer. And you're absolutely right that a declining power that knows it's a declining power is a vastly more dangerous power. Madeline, what's your most consequential story of 2023? I think it it has to be um, October 7th and, and its aftermath. So obviously this was a huge story for Israel. Israel is a very important ally to the United States um, and to much of the Western world. But but also I think it, it told us something about ourselves here as well. I mean, the response um, on campuses, the response uh, in European cities with mass demonstrations um, confirmed and exposed problems that had been bubbling along for a long time uh, related to sort of our cultural crisis, uh, a crisis of meaning, and also uh, how that overlaps with with issues with mass uh, migration as well. So I think that the world felt very different um, after October 7th. Another good answer, Charlie. Your most consequential story. Well, I think October 7th, obviously had the most wide-ranging effects. But in terms of our constitutional structure, I think the student loan decision was the most consequential because it reminded the executive branch that Congress is in charge of making law and spending money and it added to a series of cases that have moved us back toward that position and away from unilateral executive power as abused by both parties. And in my estimation, this is the biggest structural challenge facing the United States in this year and into the future. Mine is going to be both the 10-7 attack, in part because that has been a real mugged by reality moment. I see it. I see it among the many good liberals in my life who the, for whom the scales have fallen from their eyes. I think this is going to stick with us, and the, and the effects are going to stick with us for a long time. But the big, most consequential story of the year is Donald Trump's indictments. Um, they are going to steer us into a series of crises next year that are extremely fraught, and we should not underestimate and the blame falls on him for having the gumption to run for the presidency given these circumstances and force this horrible series of choices upon the country um, only so that he could save his own skin. It is profoundly irresponsible. But now we're going to move on to the most underappreciated story of the year, the story of the year that maybe flew under the radar but will have bigger effects than uh, maybe some of us have anticipated in the in the media environment. Charlie, what is your most underappreciated story of 2023? Whether the American public knows it or not, we have now reached the point at which some sort of reckoning with the debt and our deficits is guaranteed. This year... Because of rising interest rates as the result of inflation, the United States started to spend more money on servicing its debt than it did on defense. Now, that won't always obtain, 
perhaps there'll be a reprieve in the short term. But there is no plan to fix the issue. There is no plan to develop a budget that is balanced. There is no plan to start paying down the debt. There is no plan to alter the trajectory our entitlements are on. And after a certain point, the bond market is going to demand change. It's going to do so whether or not a Republican or a Democrat is president, whether Republicans or Democrats run Congress, whether the public is in a conservative mood or a progressive mood. It won't matter. We began to see the end of this false free lunch this year, and it has received almost no attention outside of the economic press but will have absolutely enormous consequences for our politics over the next decade and beyond. Very good answer. Scary, but possibly salutary. Michael, your most underappreciated story. Um, I think it is. I mean, it's it's something that a little bit of a cliche to call this an underappreciated story year after year, uh, but it's the overdose epidemic, um, in my opinion. Uh, most experts expected that the fentanyl and overdose epidemic would begin to subside after COVID, that COVID was kind of like a an accentuating factor because people were locked indoors, there was more despair, there was more just, you know, uh, there was less chance for activity, the sort of things that keep people mentally healthy. And that actually hasn't been the case. We're continuing to go upward in overdose deaths. In San Francisco, the numbers are like absolutely appalling the way they're climbing. Also in Washington State, I think it's up 39% in overdose deaths this year. Um, you know, there have been a little declines in the Northeast, but totally outweighed by the surges everywhere else. And this is, um, you know, we're talking about more people dying per year of drug overdoses than died in the entirety of the Vietnam War. Um year after year, um, this is an incredible problem. And I think it's storing up political fury because I, I just, I don't think, I think the trend for the last several decades has been to softly tolerate um, drug dealing, uh, you know, and to sort of blame the uh, victims of overdoses themselves as, as junkies to kind of morally uh, put the onus on them for their own condition. And I just don't think with fentanyl this is possible because uh, it is just so deadly. It often kills people who are do doing drugs for the first time, think they're doing another drug uh, at, a, at a safer level. Um, and this is not killing people who are, you know, 10 years of in and out of uh, drug rehab. This is killing kids who are just experimenting for the first time, like their parents thought they were doing safely, uh, you know, a generation ago. And it's just, I think this is going to change our politics in the next decade. It's tragic and very important. Madeline, your most underappreciated story. Yeah. So I still think that the, the COVID handling and cover up and, and we're still, the effects of that are still kind of coming out and they, by its nature, because it was like a, um, a year long process to, to do what 
happened and it's been a year years long process to sort of undo it it seems slow and these these stories get into the news and they seem less timely and they don't take off but actually there's you know we we now have um clarity on the origins um we we now have a, a very good idea of what the educational toll has been from um from the results we got in June from the National Assessment of Educational Process Progress. Um, and it's just it's just been so terrible. And I still feel that there's not been proper uh, accountability. Uh, there's not been the the transparency you would expect from the, the public health bureau- bureaucracy. Um, so I, I think that that is an issue that that needs to, you know, I hate to keep banging the drum, but it, it needs to be done. Mine is going to be the mutiny around Joe Biden. Um, this is a story I've talked about before, and I keep harping on it, but Politico reported on, on December 6th that the Pentagon was withholding military options from the president to respond to Yemeni attacks on shipping because he might execute them. It's a, of, a, of a piece with this weird revolt of the staffers and interns and the leaks around this president. Whatever you think of Joe Biden, this is really bad for the institution. It's bad for America. And I don't know who these people think they are. But the level of hubris to which they have succumbed is not just civically indecent, it is a sin. Um, But that's a story that'll haunt us for some time. What are the stories that won't? The most overrated story of the year. Madeline. Um, So it's probably this idea that, you know, we need a a transgender day of remembrance. The White House um, took this from the Human Rights Campaign and you know, talked about the the 26 transgender Americans killed in 2023. Now, I will say the death of any human being is a sad event, and I don't mean to trivialise it uh, in terms of the individuals in question here, but to paint this as a broad epidemic um, is frankly just ridiculous. I mean, these it's not even clear whether um, in a lot of cases the, the victims um, were targeted for being transgender. There's all sorts of things when you... You look into uh, the details, um, which are withheld from the White House statement, from human rights campaign statement, that suggest people who were really not in a very good place in life, uh, you know, sometimes involved in sort of criminal activity, which put them at risk. Sometimes just random violence, you know, a hit and run, I think one of the victims was. Anyway, let's not misrepresent it into some sort of transgender genocide. Um, You know, the, the, the president's time and the White House time should be reserved for uh for real real uh society-wide issues michael your most overhyped story uh well returning to, to something you mentioned earlier Noah, uh ukraine's counteroffensive. um i think uh after the the, the counter-offensives in the previous year where kherson and, and other uh Bits of Ukraine were recaptured by Ukrainian forces. There was a lot of interest in this. There was obviously a lot of buildup. It was an unprecedented kind of donation program from all over the world. South Korea donated weapons. The U.S. donated weapons. And, um, you know, as, as the spring approached, you know, we were getting noises from Ukraine saying, the Ukraine saying, we're not ready. And then the Americans saying, you've got to go, you've got to go because the Russians are digging in and both turned out to be true. <laughs> Ukraine couldn't keep up a kind of combined arms offensive, especially without uh, air superiority. Um, 
and the Russians were digging in and, and dug in very effectively. And, uh, you know, there's a book that, uh, both Rich Lowry and I have been reading this, this year, the allure of battle by Cahill Nolan kind of thesis is that most wars turn into wars of attrition and people fool themselves into thinking that some brilliant tactic or some brilliant battle plan will save them from this, the, this logic. And it usually doesn't. Um, and so I think what we're headed for is, is actually just a grinding stalemate that shows both um, Russia can, is not the threat to, you know, water its horses in the Elbe anytime soon. Um, but neither is Ukraine able to take back Crimea. Charlie, your most overhyped story. A few months ago, perhaps a little longer, it was reported that Donald Trump had said that he, in a second term, would wish to be able to fire bureaucrats under him. This has been treated as some sort of incipient tyranny. It's not. There's a great deal that Donald Trump has said that should be taken at face value and deemed disqualifying, but this actually is not among them. It certainly doesn't deserve to be treated the way that it has been in the new issue of the Atlantic, which is solely about the question, if Trump wins. The reform that Trump has proposed is one that ought to be favored by every Republican aspirant. There are far too many people in the executive branch who are not answerable to the president, which is a problem because the president is the only member of the executive branch who's elected directly. So I think this story has been overhyped and worse than overhyped. I think it has been misconstrued. I think it has just been assumed that there is something wrong with this suggestion because of the person that it has come from when there is nothing wrong with it. And uh, in fact, it's a necessary reform. Mine is going to be AI, and not because it's a profoundly important tool that will revolutionize the human experience, but because it was treated like it was splitting the atom. All of Silicon Valley seemed to succumb to this weird bout of panic about an algorithm that predicts what words are most likely to follow in sequence. We're all going to lose our jobs. The economy will never recover. The thing might become self-aware and neutralize the human species. It was all very bizarre and seemed bizarre to me at the time. And given our modest remove from that moment, it should be looked upon with a lot of skepticism. Who, or rather for whom, have you had the most contempt in 2023? Now we're getting to the fun stuff. Charlie, who Vivek Ramaswamy, ah, of course. That's a good one. There's no one else came to mind when I saw this question. It's Vivek Ramaswamy. It didn't come to my mind, but that's absolutely right. Well, it should have. <laughs> I consider that a personal <laughs> failing. And you are now number two in the list for not having thought of Vivek Ramaswamy the moment you saw this question. Fair enough. Walked into it. Guy's a fraud. He's a toady. He's a obsequious sponge who seems to soak up all the worst parts of the right and then feed them back incompetently. There's almost nothing I can say about Vivek Ramaswamy I haven't already said, but he has not improved upon consideration. Let's put it that way. It's the end of 2023. 
I had a strong view of him at the beginning of 2023. My view of him is stronger yet now. Michael, who has your who has earned your contempt? Okay, I, I've got to be given two answers here. Um, so, first answer, Pope Francis, and I'm, I regret to say this. He further tightened the screws on Latin Mass Catholics like myself this year. At the same time, he and the people around him obviously intervened to protect Father Marco Rupnik, uh, a man who two separate Jesuit investigations found to have sexually abused female religious, you know, religious nuns that he was in charge of forcing them to do sex acts with him to do sex acts with the uh, chalice used in Catholic mass to uh, do things that I cannot describe on this uh, podcast uh, without us getting like an FEC warning Um, and had to be pressured by the media into accepting what the Jesuits had concluded long ago. This man was a psychopathic danger to others. Uh, Francis had tried to reassign him in good standing. And then he finished the year with this, uh, deliberately screwed up, uh, document on blessings, which is causing a civil war in the church between African bishops and European bishops. And which in my view is like, as, um, uh, instructing priests in the way that he did to bless the things he asked them to bless without really explicitly asking them to do that is um, is about as negligent as a, an electrician deliberately miswiring your house uh, to put it on fire. So that, that, but, and yet there's one group of people who managed to outdo f- all of that for me, which is anyone who ripped down a poster of a kidnapped Israeli child, wherever you did it, if you did it in the streets of Dublin while listening to these fake independent TDs complain about an apartheid state in Israel, if you did it in New York City, you are the lowest form of human trash. I I didn't even think you could exist. People leave up dog missing posters in every city of the world. And you couldn't give the victims of Hamas as much dignity as a local dog. You are the scum of the earth. That's a perfect answer. Um, Madeline, I think you're next. Um, well, it's hard, hard to, hard to follow that, but, um, I, I would also have said, uh, most contempt for, Hamas, but perhaps um, in some ways more so for its uh, supporters and enablers, and especially people who do so out of ignorance. Um, I can think of a lot of uh, individuals whose social media posts, um, having never had an opinion on what was going on in the region before October 7th, suddenly uh, thought this was an opportunity to dump on Israel and um, no mention or respect for the hostages or families. Um, And then obviously everything we've seen on college campuses in this area has also been just contemptible. Um, 
so yeah, that's that's probably my biggest one. I, I was also going to say uh, for very different reasons and to a different extent, um, the British Conservative Party, but I think Michael has already perfectly articulated everything I could have said about them. So, You know, I didn't realize that Hamas was in the mix here. You didn't. If I'd known that. I might have. <laughs> well, then this is your I chance might've. to make it unanimous, Charlie. It's it's it's, it's it, the questions were up for interpretation. You know. So no, just, I was going to say if I'd known that Hamas was in the mix here, I'd still have chosen Vivek Ramaswamy. <laughs> <laughs> That's a joke. Media matters. <laughs> I liked it. Well, we're going to make it almost un- unanimous. Mine is the Hamas apologists. They have achieved a, a level of moral depravity that is matched only by the suffocating sanctimony with which they broadcast their nonsense. My contempt is tempered only by the fact I have a little bit of gratitude because they're demonstrating with a total lack of self-awareness, the ugliness that has long festered beneath the surface of the anti-colonialist fashion and anti-Israel activism in general. So uh, thank you, Hamas apologists and go screw. Um, We're going to end our year in review with a positive note. Who or what has inspired you in the year 2023? Beginning with you, Madeline. So for me, it's a a story about a young married couple who had a devastating diagnosis. um, The the mother, uh, Nicole is her name. She was carrying conjoined twins and was was told that this was a life-limiting diagnosis and advised to have an abortion. And she refused um they're a catholic couple and they sort of documented their pregnancy journey and the the palliative care uh, they received which in- included um spiritual support they had a priest baptize their children um and i just thought it was an incredibly profound humane um and courageous choice that they made and it was very heartwarming uh to to sort of see although ultimately tragic um, and I think it's one of those pro-life stories that it, you don't have to talk about politics. You, you don't have to get into what other people might have chose, but just to see this in action was, was very inspiring. Michael, your source of inspiration. Um, obviously it's, um, Canadians who are responding to their, uh, poor situation in life being born Canadian by killing themselves. No, um, no, I'm just kidding. Um, it's a dark joke. Uh, no, quite the opposite. I was going to say Latina woman. Am I right? No, 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 no. No, um, no the most inspiring thing, you know, this year uh, for me has been uh, just a very personal thing, and I, I can only really hint at it. Um, but the, the life of uh, my Catholic parish that I go to, um, the, um, you know, we're nourished there by the traditional liturgy, which the Pope does not like. Uh, but this group of families that goes there are so rock solid. Um, they face tremendous challenges together as a community, supporting each other through them, whether it's cancer diagnosis, whether it's an adverse, you know, in utero diagnosis, uh, and generally just, uh, perform heroically with each other uh, and just living real life. And uh, I'm actually visiting, uh, we'll be visiting one of those families later this afternoon, uh, just to have a nice dinner before Christmas. And um, uh, 
yeah, they continue to uh, inspire me all in individual ways. Uh, little, little more invisible moral heroes all around us. Bless them. Charlie, who's inspired you? I, I'm going to say something very off-brand here. What has inspired me this year is the American public. Oh, yeah, that totally doesn't fit with the theme of this podcast. <laughs> well, I'll tell you why. I have said many times before that the point at which I begin to drop into despair is the point at which I can't see any connection between the inputs and the outputs, between what people are being asked and how they respond. Now, there are many examples of this at the moment in American life, one of which is Donald Trump's lead in the primary polls. But I think that this year, the American public has shown that it does respond to inputs. For example, despite the best efforts, of the White House and the press and many of our institutions to insist that everything's fine with the economy, the public isn't buying it. Despite the best efforts on the left and the best efforts on the right to insist that Joe Biden is really cool, he's dark Brandon, and Donald Trump is based MAGA, hero savior, the public's not buying it. The public hates both of them. It's completely baffled by what's going on. Super majorities within it don't want either of them to run. And I think that's positive. I think the moment that the American public is susceptible to that sort of propaganda, then we have a real problem. And this year has reminded me that although there are lots of little problems, problems I complain about all the time, the public's still actually quite sensible. It knows when things aren't great. It knows when running retreads is against its interest, and it's prepared to say so. And yes, this has led to all manner of people tearing their hair out or refusing to acknowledge it, but it doesn't make it less true. That's an interesting and good, good answer and a hopeful one. I'm going to put in a good word briefly for John Fetterman's metamorphosis from slovenly lefty troll to a bold butterfly of common sense and <laughs> rationality. Good for him. But my source of inspiration this year is the late... I say advisedly, head of the Wagner Group private militia, Yevgeny Purgosian. <laughs> he mounted the most successful internal rebellion against Russia since the Kronstadt sailors. He captured Rostov on Don. Who else but Hitler? He stood up for his mutinous band of criminals and cutthroats so they could raid with impunity three continents. And he he sacrificed much for his uh, for his uh, stand against the Kremlin. He was uh, taken out, according to the Wall Street Journal, taken out on orders from the Kremlin, as we all suspected, and probably anyone who saw that mutiny suspected. But as St. Gregory said, it is better to make one's exit a free man than to seek liberty after one is in chains. Desvidanya, Yevgeny. Before we move on to uh, the, you know, the lighter items and we move on to our Christmas break, Want to put in a brief plug for NR Plus? It's your way around the metered paywall. You uh, don't have to keep opening up those incognito windows and stealing other people's passwords. Just pay a small fee. You get access to our whole suite of offerings from the magazine to the lively debate that occurs on the corner, our articles, our editorials. It's all there for you. It's an important way to support our journalism and National Review's mission. Also, I want to emphasize for those of you who are inclined, that call to action at the beginning Leave a, leave a review on iTunes. It's good for us. It helps other people see the show. Uh, it helps others experience and be exposed to national review. And that's good for us. It's good for you. It's good for America. Meanwhile, we're going to move on to some lighter stuff. Charlie, 
you are in the midst of rapping. Yes, and as I imagine is the case for many men listening to this podcast, I'm not very good at rapping. I try hard. I'm just not good at rapping. My children this morning, while we were rapping my wife's presence, told me this. In fact, my seven-year-old said it fairly explicitly. He said, Daddy, you're good at a lot of things. This isn't one of them. Direct, honest. The joke, though, is on him. Because having noticed that I'm not particularly good at rapping, I've devised a devious way of getting away with it. That is to invite my children to help me every time I wrap a present. And then if the person to whom I've given the present says this isn't particularly well-wrapped or gives me one of those looks that suggests that they've noticed that it isn't well-wrapped. I say, well, no, no, um, I did this with my children. And then they think that my total incompetence is my children's incompetence when, in fact, it's not. That is a clever ruse. Madeline, you've been doing some last-minute shopping. Yeah, so um, I ordered something um, online, hoping that it would arrive before Christmas. And... um, I went on to check the status of the order and I noticed that it hadn't changed in a few days. And uh, then when I, um, this company has one of those chat boxes. So I expressed my concern to an agent there, which I assumed was a robot. And because I assumed it was a robot, I didn't include the normal polite um, turns of phrase that that you do when when you're dealing with a human being. I was just very direct and complaining. And uh, soon I realized that I was, in fact, dealing with a human being, um, which just uh, made me feel kind of bad. But by this point, the human being was very apologetic and moving heaven and earth to make sure this order arrived in time. And the moral of the story is that sometimes being rude gets you places because um, it's I, I've, I've got a, a new tracking number and I can see that it's going to arrive in about an hour. That's uh, that's like a sitcom plot. It's, <laughs> it's actually very funny. Uh, Michael, you are involved in something called Cookie Day. Yeah, uh, long-time listeners probably know this one now. Um, but each year for Christmas, my uh, wife's family has a is Cookie Day ahead of Christmas, where um, the various nodes of the family gathered together in one house for an endless day of baking treats for Christmas. And... Uh, the youngest generation of kids there are now across the various nodes. Uh, seven children between one and nine years old. Uh, the cousins get together in like matching pajamas for the day, play around and wreak havoc with each other while uh, the thumbprint cookies and fudge and all sorts of other goodies get flows out of the kitchen um, in anticipation of the big day. So just a great tradition. Very cool. As soon as this podcast wraps, I am off to Costco for the annual uh, meat fest. I do the cooking for Christmas dinner, and the menu is set. It is the 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 big beef Wellington with the green peppercorn sauce, the carrot souffle, pancetta sprouts, a burrata salad with roasted butternut squash. It's going to take me at least two full days, but it's going to be worth it. Time now for editor's picks. Madeline, what's your pick? Um, My pick is our editorial on the um, Colorado case. I thought it was just very clear, laid out what's wrong with it, 
and is very worth reading. Michael, your last pick of 2023. Uh, my, pick, my pick is uh, from the new issue. It's a piece by John Noonan, uh, An Actual War on Drugs, which um, is about what it would look like to use military force in Mexico on the cartels, which is, is an idea that's been brought up several times by Republican candidates and um, is highly, highly questionable. Charlie, your last pick of the year. I'm going to follow Maddie's pick and choose our editorial, which I've now read three or four times because I've seen National Review's editorial position on this Colorado Supreme Court decision criticized from the left and from the right, from the pro and anti-Trump factions. And so I've gone back each time because I've seen our hypothetical or imaginary position critiqued. And I wanted to check, having read that editorial, that it said what those who are criticizing it say that it says, and it doesn't. As Maddie says, it's very clear. It's judicious. It comports perfectly with everything that we believe editorially about Trump, about the role of courts, about the way to interpret the Constitution, about democracy, it is really good, and even if you don't think it's good, it's absolutely consistent with the editor's other positions. So I uh, am proud to uh, have, albeit not directly, my name <laughs> represented by that editorial, um, and those who dislike it are wrong. Has happened before. My pick is from Dominic Pino. U.S. Steel is not owned by U.S. Senators. Dominic's been really good on the controversy surrounding the acquisition of U.S. Steel by Nippon Steel. He kind of breaks down some of the misconceptions and puts the whole thing in perspective in a way that is very valuable. That is going to do it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcast. Any rebroadcast, retransmission, or account of this show without express written permission of National Review magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Schutte, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Madeline. And thank you to the absent Rich Lowry. Thank you also to our advertisers. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors, and we'll see you next time.